Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 100th episode of the Nauticast <laughs> titled The Hero's Journey. Which is our story, of course, and it now is actually a story of Bran's fourth chapter from The Clash of Kings, in which the skeptic Maester Lewin and the true believer Jojen Ree both struggle to get the protagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire onto their side. If only they could get along as well as Jeff and I do, folks. And thank you so much for getting us to our 100th episode. We also recently just passed 1 million total downloads over on Podbean, which is awesome. Uh, just uh, We can't express how grateful uh, we are for, for how much support you guys have put into this podcast. And we can't wait to, to keep bringing you the best we possibly can. You guys are nice, and I like you, and I you can now release my family, Emmett, for saying those nice things about the about the uh, the people that listen to us. But we'll see, we'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> but no, if, seriously, if you behave, if I behave, thank you, I appreciate that. But yes, in all seriousness, thank you guys very, very much for for listening to us. It's, it's amazing getting a million total downloads and being up to one hundred episodes. It's um, it, it's cool. I. You know, not not that. I mean, uh, that's <laughs> not just, that Jeff cares or anything. I don't no. care about this shit. Whatever the fuck, you know. But it, it's 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 really really nice that you guys uh, listen to us. It's it's gratifying to me. It makes me happy, and it makes me excited to come on to do this every single week with you guys. So thank you all very very much. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council: our head of the king, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves. Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Phil the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster Arch June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Lyria, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, one of the Eastern Bishops of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Anamis, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Canoli, Sir Sorsidalica, Prince Matthew, of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dance with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. of the Blackwood Guard and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Dees and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for several unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldivar, the waiter for T.W.O.W., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First for Dame, the Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overwork, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser of the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great, Game of Thrones, Purchase of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender of Paints, and Maker of Drawings, who, by the way, if title isn't luxurious enough already, is also celebrating a birthday today on our recording day on February 10th. Everyone wish Vanessa a very happy birthday, and happy birthday from both of us. In honor of her and uh, this episode, I'm wearing her shirt here. On, oh, uh, on that's summer. sweet. Bran Stark's Wolf. So happy birthday, Vanessa. Sean Wilder Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexandra of Tarth, and thank you very much to all of our small council patrons. Thank you, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, who asks, Let's be honest. Always a good start. 
Bran wasn't a fully fleshed out character in season 7 and 8. He acted more as a plot device when he should have been a central focus due to his endgame state, King Bran, which I agree will happen in the books. We all believe that Bran will be even more essential in Winds and Dream, however, and may have a vital role not only in stopping the others, but in revealing Jon's true heritage and helping to mend Westeros following the Second War for the Dawn. The show provided two general reasons for Jon murdering Danny. She was pushing for war and liberation without end, and her actions could potentially lead to ensnaring and destroying the North and House Stark. The show framed antagonism between Sansa and Danny, which I'm sure will occur in some fashion. Northern independence and Jon's claim were expressed through Sansa, but do you think there's any potential for Danny Bran conflict towards the end of the series that could force Jon's hand, or do you think, like in the show, King Bran is a twist at the end? What do you think about that, all that, sir? How do you think Danny and Bran are going to interact in terms of these these last few big plot twists in the story? You know, I'd be curious about what Bran might reveal about her relative, Bloodraven. Of course, is the Three-Eyed Crow which we will talk about, of course, at the end of this episode. I, I would be curious to see what Danny's reaction would be if Bran somehow reveals that he can see everything past, present, and future. Does the antagonism between Danny and Bran actually end? Does there hostility between the two characters in the story? I think it's a strong possibility, especially if Bran knows at some level he's going to be the final king of Westeros. He's going to be the person that is going to succeed Daenerys Targaryen. Would Bran be able to stay silent about that? I'm I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure whether that's something he could s- stay silent about, or whether because he's a good-hearted lad, he would kind of reveal <laughs> reveal himself to Daenerys Targaryen. And Danny might not take kindly to that because if we are taking stuff from the books, it's possible that she might have already dispatched with one pretender, namely in the form of Young Griff. She might already have had a significant conflict between her and her nephew slash lover, Jon Snow, having a third person step up and say that he is going to be the one to succeed Daenerys Targaryen because he learned it from being the last green seer and having access to the Weirwood network is going to potentially lead to a lot of conflict between Danny and Bran. I, I see the appeal of Bran like guilelessly giving Danny too much information, <laughs> but I get the feeling George is going to keep Bran and, Bran and Danny pretty much apart. They're, they're huh. kind of too, they're kind of too powerful to, to share the same space and they're focused on completely different things. And I think Bran, if he knows exactly what's going to happen, is just going to probably stay out of Danny's way and let it happen. And I think there's there's enough motivation that you already explored talking about the beats with young Griff, talking about John's conflict over the North versus, you know, allowing Danny to, to uh, rule from the Iron Throne. I think there's enough material there without Bran getting involved. And I do think Bran is kind of there to take over at the end more than he is, I think, to lead any charge against Danny. I don't, I don't, I don't think Bran, I think Bran, if, if Bran has a, a singular foe, I think it might be Euron. And I think if, if if Danny has to focus her rage in terms of replacements, I think she already has young Griffin John for that. So I would I would lean towards Danny and Bran barely interacting at all. If, if I had to guess. Thank you to Lord Travis for the question. If you'd like to ask us a question on the Not a Cast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or High Level Patron over at Patreon.com/slash/NotaCast A S O I A F where you can get show notes, early access to every episode, Q&A, and bonus episodes. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our next Patreon only episode will be. Oh, I'm not going to sing it. I just do it, please. For you got to do it. You got to sing it. Do it. Mm, I'm, I'm saving my voice Come for my Jojen voice later in the episode. Do Every it. rose has, has its thorns. thorns. Our full analysis of yes. House Terrell, yes. past, present, and future, is coming at the end of this month at Poor Fellow and Above Level Patrons. Again, at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. I hope you're happy. 
Ah, this is the perfect gift for me on the 100th episode that I finally got Emma to sing after spending so many episodes being berated for being the person to sing on the Not A Cast podcast. Oh, oh man. But yes, yeah, the Tyrells, they're, they're great. They're not the Lannisters. They're actually House Frey of the Reach. It's going to be great. So mm, much to talk about mm-hmm. them. So can't wait to do that. But enough about Patreon. Well, we last checked in with Bran Stark because yes, this is a Bran episode. He had hosted the Harvest Feast at Winterfell and had welcomed Mira and Jojen Reed to Winterfell. Let's find out what Bran and those Reeds get up to in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Bran 4. Mira Reed moves in a circle, frog spear in one hand, net in her other as Summer tracks her. Her spear darts out and Summer moves away from the thrust and jumps into Mira. But then Mira brings down the net on the direwolf who lands on top of her. Bran hooted, you lose. She wins, her brother Jojen said. Summer's snared. He was right, Bran saw. Thrashing and growling at the net, trying to rip free, Summer was only in staring himself worse, nor could he bite through. Let him out. Mira laughs and throws her arms around Summer before rolling around with him while the poor doggo whines at still, not, at still being in the net. Finally, Mira releases him and Bran calls Summer over to him for a fun little game. Bran reaches up and grabs the direwolf and Summer drags him across the grass. They're playing. It's nice. Is this a song of ice and fire? Yeah, it is. Soon enough. Mira asks if Summer ever got angry, but Bran says that Summer never gets angry with him. And Summer won't hurt the reeds either. He knows that Bran likes them. All of the other lords and knights had departed within a day or two of the harvest feast, but the reeds had stayed on to become Bran's constant companions. Jojen was so solemn that old Dan called him Little Grandfather, but Mira reminded Bran of his sister Arya. She wasn't scared to get dirty, and she could run and fight and throw as good as any boy. She was older than Arya, though, almost 16, a woman grown. They were both older than Bran, even though his ninth day had finally come and gone, but they never treated him like a child. That's nice. Bran states that he wishes the reeds were his wards instead of those shit fucking phrase as he crawls towards the heart tree. When Mira notices that Bran seems to be struggling, she attempts to help, but Bran doesn't need any help. He sits up against the heart tree and wonders at Mira fighting with the spear. Did the master at arms teach her that? Nope. It was her dad, Howland Reed, who taught her. Greywater doesn't have a master at arms or knights or even a maester. Bran thinks this curious and wonders at how they receive ravens at Greywater Watch. They don't, or miraculously, they can't. Howl's castle moves. Bran doesn't know whether he's being mocked or not. Yeah, I know that feeling, Your Grace. So he asks whether he can visit the castle. You would be most welcome, my prince. Then or now? Now? Bran had spent his whole life at Winterfell. He yearned to see far places. I could ask Sir Roderick when he returns. The old knight was off east, trying to set to rights the trouble there. Roos Bolton's bastard had started by seizing Lady Hornwood as she returned from the Harvest Feast, marrying her that very night, even though he was young enough to be her son. Yikes. Then Lord Manderley had taken her castle. To protect the Hornwood holdings from the Boltons, he had written. But Sir Roderick had almost been as angry with him as he was with the bastard. Sir Roderick might let me go. Maester Lewin never would. Then Jojen Reed decides to start doing that Clash of Kings thing and begins saying cryptic shit at the protagonist, namely that Bran should leave Winterfell now. When Bran asks why, Mira reports that Jojen has the green sight, namely the ability to dream things that come true, sometimes. There is no sometimes, Mira. A look passed between them, him sad. Her defiant. So Bran asks what's going to happen because that's what you do when you're dealing with prophets who can see the future, right? Yeah. But Jojen again, and this is a hashtag mood in A Clash of Kings, says that maybe he'll tell Bran, but Bran has to show his first. Uh, by that he means Bran's got to tell Jojen about the dreams he's been having. Well, that puts a nice cold chill in the air and everyone and everything gets quiet. 
Bran thinks of the, quote, golden man and the three-eyed crow, and then helpfully remembers the taste of blood. But he deflects from the question, saying he doesn't remember the dream due to the sleep drugs that Lou is giving him. Jojen asks if the, if the drugs help, and Bran says, sometimes. But Mira puts in that the whole castle is aware of Bran waking up screaming. And Jojen really doesn't want to know why. And Jojen really wants to know why Bran is so scared. But Bran doesn't want to talk about that. Dreams don't mean shit, right? In reality, yeah, sure. In fiction, they always mean something brand. God, just read the TV tropes page already. Mira states that, yeah, most dreams are nonsense, but Jojen's green dreams are a bit different. Jojen's eyes were the color of moss. And sometimes when he looked at you, he seemed to be seeing something else. Like now. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth with gray stone chains, he said. It was a green dream, so I knew it was true. A crow was trying to peck through the chains, but the stone was too hard and his beak could only chip at them. Did the crow have three eyes? Jojen nodded. My God, what was old man what was old man doing appearing to Jojen in dream? I mean okay, guys, why is everyone looking at me like that? It always <laughs> seems to be the case that's it's a little bit terrifying. At this though, Summer perks up towards Jojen, and Jojen continues with the story saying that the three eyed crow came to him when he was a boy and when he nearly died of grey water fever. Bran blurts out that the three-eyed crow came to Bran when he was comatose, warning him that he had to fly or die. But when he woke up, he was broken and he couldn't fly. But Mira knows But Mira knows better. Bran can fly if he wants, and Jojen picks up that line of thought, stating that Bran is the winged wolf. Jojen was skeptical at first, but now he knows for sure. The three-eyed crow sent the reeds to Bran to break the chains. But sorry, the three-eyed crow isn't in Grey Water. Isn't in Grey Water Watch. He's up north beyond the wall. Oh, wait, how did Old Nan get beyond the wall? Isn't she at Winterfell right now? Stop looking at stop looking at me. When Bran asks how they break the chains, Jojen replies that Bran will have to open his third eye. With his third eye, he'd be able to see the Winterfell heart tree in past, present, and future. From acorn to tree to stump. And Bran could see anything with his third eye go anywhere. Bran, feeling nervous, says he really doesn't need to see that far. Anyways, guys, we should totally talk about lizard lions. You all like to hunt lizard lions. I bet they're super fucking fierce. Did you dream of a lizard lion? No, said Bran. I told you, I, I don't want. Did you dream of a wolf? He was making Bran angry. I don't have to tell you my dreams. I'm the prince. I'm the Stark in Winterfell. Was it summer? You be quiet. The night of the harvest feast. You dreamed you were summer in the godswood, didn't you? Stop it! Bran shouted. Summer slid toward the werewood, his white teeth bared. Jojen Reed took no mind. When I touched Summer, I felt you in him, just as you are in him now. You, you couldn't have. I was, I, was, I was in bed. I was sleeping. You were in the godswood, all in gray. It was only a bad dream. Jojen stood. I felt you. I felt you fall. Is that what scares you, the falling? Yeah, it scares the fuck out of me. Great voice, Emmett. It's going to stay with me forever now. Thank you for that. Then Bran remembers falling, thinking about who it was that pushed him, Jamie Lannister. But he couldn't tell Roderick or Maester Lewin for reasons, I guess. And he won't tell Jojen Reed now. All Bran wanted was to forget about his trauma, and the best way to do that was to never speak of it, right? Do you fall every night, Bran? Jojen asked quietly. Summer growls, and it's not a friendly sound. Mira steps in front of Summer and tells Bran to keep his wolf back, but Bran reports that Jojen is making Summer angry. No, Jojen says it isn't Summer. It's Bran's anger and fear projecting onto Summer. It isn't. I'm not a wolf. Yet he howled with them at night and tasted blood in his wolf dreams. Part of you is Summer, and part of Summer is you. You know that, Bran. 
At that, Summer charges Jojen, but Mira blocks him and orders Bran to call him off. Bran tries, but it's to no avail. The wolf blood is on the wolf, but then it gets worse. Shaggy Dog approaches Jojen from behind. Mira then orders Jojen up a tree. There's no need. Today is not the day I die. But then Mira shouts for Jojen to get his ass up the tree, and he does so, followed by Mira, who jumps just in time to avoid Shaggy Dog's jaws closing around her ankle. Just then, Summer, whoops, I mean, when I was actually writing this, I actually wrote Summer instead of Bran, but, you know, one and the same. Uh, but, and I'm keeping in the synopsis for that particular reason. So, Bran slash Summer remembers a way to avoid all this best. He calls for Hodor to come, and Hodor comes up humming tunelessly. Bran orders Hodor to chase off the wolves, and the gentle giant goes about that cheerfully, waving his arms around until Shaggy Dog runs off, and Summer retreats to plop down next to Bran. No sooner did Mira touch ground than she snatched up her spear and net again. Jojen never took his eyes off Summer. We will talk again, he promised Bran. It wasn't the wolves. It wasn't me. He didn't understand why they'd gotten so wild. Maybe Maester Lewin was right to lock them in the godswood. Hodor, he said. Bring me to Maester Lewin. Bran loves Maester Lewin's turret, and he finds Lewin amidst a clutter of all his books and scrolls and bottles. I know that feeling. Lewin, for his part, is surprised to find Bran here so early and ahead of time for his lessons. So Bran explains that Jojen has the greed sight and asks Lewin's opinion of it. Was it magic? Well, if that's the word Bran wants to use, Lewin ain't here to say he's wrong. Anyways, the children of the forest had Greensight and their wise men were called Greenseers. But it's not entirely clear what Greensight was. Given that the first men cut down the word with trees, it's speculated that Greensight revolved around the faces of the trees and seeing through the eyes that the children of the forest carved into their faces. Also, the Greenseers could mind control woodland creatures, birds, and apparently fish. Fish, that's interesting. But Jojen doesn't claim to have that power. His only power is that his dreams come true. All of us have dreams that come true, Lewin said. You dreamed of your lord father in the crypts before we knew he was dead, remember? Rickon did too. We, we dreamed the same dream. Uh, call it green, said if you wish. But remember, as well as those tens of thousands of dreams that you and Rickon have dreamed that did not come true. Lewin then calls attention to his maester's collar and points out the Valyrian steel link that he has. That link was for studying magic. Lewin had even attempted magic when he was at the Citadel, but there was no true magic left. Well, perhaps magic was once a mighty force in the world, but no longer. What little remains is no more than a wisp of smoke that lingers in the air after a great fire has burned out, and even that is fading. Valyria was the last ember, and Valyria is gone. The dragons are more. Nope. The giant. The giants are dead. Uh-uh. uh The children of the forest forgotten with all their lore. I guess it's sort of true, but they're not gone. No, my prince Jojen Reed may have a dream or two that he believes comes true, but he does not have green sight. No living man has that power. Later that day, Bran tells Mira what Maester Lewin told him and apologizes for what Summer did, but really, Jojen was being a fucking dick and a liar. The Three-Eyed Crow, also a liar. Everyone is lying to Bran all the time, and it's getting ridiculous. But Mira has it that maybe Lewin is wrong. And yeah, Bran's dad, Ned, listened to Lewin back in the day, but Ned made his own mind up. Kind of like what you should be doing, Bran. But does Bran maybe want to hear about a dream, Jojen dream? It involves Bran and the water phrase too, I guess. It can't be helped. Well, yeah, Bran would like to hear a dream about that involves him. It fulfills that Dennis Reynolds, if I'm not in any of these dreams and nobody's having sex, I just don't care criteria about dreams. You were sitting at supper, but instead of a servant, Maester Lewin brought you your, your food. He served you the king's cut off the roast, the meat rare and bloody, but with a savory smell that made everyone's mouth water. The meat he served, the phrase, was old and gray and dead. 
yet they like their supper better than than you liked yours. I don't understand. You will, my brother says. When you do, we'll talk again. That night, Bran is scared to come to dinner, but when he finally arrives, he finds that it's only pigeon pie for him and everyone else. There seems nothing amiss with dinner. Nothing was wrong. So Maester Lewin was right. Nothing bad was on its way to Winterfell. Hooray! Crisis averted! Woo woo! There's relief in that, but there's also disappointment. So long as there was magic, anything could happen. Ghosts could walk, trees could talk, and broken boys could grow up to become knights. But there isn't, he said aloud in the darkness of his bed. There's no magic, and the stories are just stories. And that is A Clash of Kings Brand 4. You know, Emmett, I, mean, I, I previously thought Brand's story was my least favorite in A Clash of Kings before doing this reread podcast, but boy, am I pleasantly surprised by how good these chapters are, man. I mean, the Danny chapters, yeah, they're obviously the worst parts of A Clash of Kings, but these Brand <laughs> chapters are amazing. And I think it really comes down, honestly, to how much emotion George embeds into Brand's story. And I wonder if you agree with that or if you have a different take on how George is writing Brand's chapters in A Clash of Kings. I totally agree. They're really growing on me this this read as well. And I think it's so fortuitous that our 100th episode landed on a chapter specifically that just runs the gamut of everything great about A Song of Ice and Fire. You got important character beats for Bran. You got perfectly paced revelations about his new supporting characters, Jojen and Mira Reed. You got a tense little action scene with the direwolves, a beautifully written dialogue scene with Maester Lewin, and just a devastating ending that both summarizes all of the above and complicates it further. And just like these other visually vibrant A Clash of Kings chapters we've been covering, there's gorgeous imagery all the way through. It's the kind of chapter that just makes me grateful to be doing this with you, sir. That's really nice of you to say, man. That's sweet. Thank you. I I will, you know, everyone who says that Emmett is not sweet and nice, I think you're wrong. And you should probably fire yourself into the sun. One of those things I really love about doing this chapter by chapter, week by week podcast is how granular we get when we're doing these chapters. I mean, I I love being able to look at how George is doing narratives, specifically how he's, you know, deconstructing writing tropes. You know, he's not just deconstructing, deconstructing tropes in terms of fantasy genre. He's also doing it from the meta level of deconstructing writing tropes. I'll explain. So if you're a writer, you've heard the trope show don't tell it's it's a pretty good maxim all things considered for writers and how you're supposed to do exposition instead of doing you know large jumps of people explaining things you know show it you know demonstrate it but george in this chapter excuse that he has lewin tell the backstory of the children of the forest the green seers and whether jojen has any magical ability and it's pretty effective right because the information that lewin conveys is wrong Almost all of it is wrong. And later in his dragons, instead of doing the tell, don't show, he's actually going to show, not tell, the truth about the children of the forest, the green seers, warging in werewoods through at three at the three-eyed crow's cave. It's great. It's fantastic. It's spooky. It's amazing. And that's an effective, in my opinion, that's an effective subversion of a writing trope. And I think that's what George means when he says things like he writes the books to reward, to reward, to reward rereading. That's a mouthful. But let's move beyond, you know, my own personal self. Congratulation for picking up on this thing that George may or may not have intended and towards praising George himself in writing a Clash Kings brand brand four because my God, is it good? So I I guess my question for you is what is it about Brand's fourth chapter in Clash Kings that makes it so good as a chapter? I think what really makes Brand 4 work so well is the tone, or rather the tones, because George is moving deftly between multiple moods as we go through the chapter. The chapter opens on a duel between Summer and Mira, which, as first-time readers, we don't know is only for show. Like, the direwolves have been consistently aggressive to outsiders in Winterfell. We saw that with Tyrion. We saw that with the guy who tried to kill Bran when he was in a coma. We saw it with the, the wildlings and the deserted watchmen in the woods. We saw it with the young Walder's Frey earlier in this book. 
And last time we checked in with Bran, he had slipped inside Summer's skin to see the Reed siblings approaching. And this opening scene is a mirror to that one. So I think as first-time readers, we're supposed to tense up at this, wondering if we're about to see Summer hurt Mira, or the other way around. Not until Bran laughs and says that Mira loses do we know that we're in fact watching playtime. As Bran says, the Reeds have come under Summer's protection. He won't hurt them because Bran likes them, because they've become, like family, part of the pack. The tone of the scene immediately changes and becomes lighter. Bran has friends again. He's the happiest we've seen them since the fall. Uh, this tone continues with Mira laughing, Summer whining, and then Bran frolicking with his wolf across the grass. Like, this is pure, innocent love, and it's a sacred thing. As we've said about the Winterfell Godswood before, it's an oasis, a source of renewal and strength for characters ranging from Bran to Ned to Theon. That doesn't make it bloodless, quite the opposite, as we see the Godswood associated with blood throughout the story. Ned cleans his sword here after executing Garrod, Maester Lewin bleeds out beneath the heart tree in the final pages of this book, and Bran tastes sacrificial blood at the end of his psychedelic journey into that same tree in A Dance with Dragons. But even that blood is connected to home. Hearth, heritage, meaning, wisdom, and the ultimate renewal of life associated with Hero's Journey characters like Bran. And so this chapter does initially feel much smaller in scope than the last couple Bran chapters. The northern nobles whose political wrangling and exuberant feasting took up so much space in the last couple Bran chapters have all left, save for the reeds of Greywater Watch. Yeah, Winterfell's feeling a little bit empty, and it's kind of a nice feeling. It's after you've had a large party at your house, and everybody's finally gotten the fuck out, and you finally have <laughs> the space to like think about the world. There is some remnants, some specter, of, as, as I call it, of what actually occurred at the Harvest Feast kind of hanging over this happy start to this chapter. And later, Bran's going to be thinking about how Lady Hornwood was seized by Ramsay Snow on her way back to Castle Hornwood, and then was forced to marry said Ramsay Snow. And now the Manderleys had taken the Hornwood Castle and Roger Cassell was out on the field attempting to bring peace to these warring factions in the north. The, the consequence of Lewin and Roderick's unwillingness to act in Rob's name at the Harvest Feast with regard to the Hornwood inheritance crisis is now being felt outside of Winterfell. So even though the nobles are gone now, and even though this chapter open is really, I think it's close to being the happiest chapter opens in the Hall of a Song of Ice and Fire, there's dread on the horizon just outside of the Winterfell Godswood. The reeds seem content, at first, just to serve as court companions to their fresh young prince. And you could easily interpret this as the Game of Thrones at work, as Maester Lewin probably did until Bran talks to him about Jojen's dreams. Lewin probably, you know, interprets the reeds' desire to stay at Winterfell as, you know, oh, Howland Reed, Ned's old war buddy, he's seeking to improve the influence of his house through his children, now that Northern Independence has made Winterfell a royal court unto itself. And so they're not making explicit demands of Bran, they're supposed to just be there, they're just happy to be around him. And that's such a refreshing change for him, given how Bran has felt in this book so far. Constantly pulled in two directions at once, the external demands of the prince, clashing with the internal demands of the warg, the beastling, the skin changer. Bran has had like his shoulders hunched defensively, all the way through Bran 1, 2, and 3. For once, as Bran 4 opens, he is relaxed in the present moment. And you can really see that in how he's much more comfortable with his body than he has been any other time after the fall. He's rustling around with Summer in front of people. He's rejecting help without letting the offer of help ruin his good time. This is such a great change for Bran. He even compares Mira, Mira to Arya. If he squints, it's like he finally has his family back. And that's how you know it can't last. George slowly turns up the spookiness factor throughout the scene, making both Bran and the reader gradually aware of exactly why the reeds came, why they stuck around when the rest left, and what's going to happen with them now. Before we dig into exactly what Jojen Elf on a Shelf Reed has to say about the cosmos and Bran's central place within it, we gotta just praise the buildup of it. 
And again, it's all about the tone. You get that initial jolt of fear associated with the direwolf, backed up when Mira reminds Bran that the wolves have in fact drawn blood. This makes it feel like a natural progression when they get angry later in the chapter. Then, even as we smile at Bran enjoying himself again, George sprinkles in little ominous notes surrounding Jojen, who is the one throwing off this whole happy tableau, just like Tyrion was interrupting Cersei and Lancel. Jojen starts the chapter off contradicting Bran about how, who really run the duel. Was it Summer, or was it Mira with her net? And you can see, so while Summer, who is Bran's other half, seems to be in charge, it's the Reeds who have snared him. And that sets up the dynamic in this scene perfectly. Are the Reeds here to help Bran? To show him the truth, preserve his life, shelter him as he becomes the protagonist he is destined to be? Or are they basically here to kidnap him? <laughs> like, if Summer represents Bran, then the Reeds with their net could represent the children of the forest with their weirwood net snaring Bran's mind and soul. After all, Jojen is directly sitting under the heart tree in this scene, speaking for the Three-Eyed Crow, and the Cranog men are con consistently, constantly associated with the children of the forest. So I think the question that should be running through the reader's mind is, is Jojen really breaking Bran's chains, as he claims, or is he merely fastening another subtler set of chains on him? Then you have Bran noting that old Nan calls Jojen little grandfather, which is just hilarious as a flex <laughs> that you have this insanely old woman calling this kid a little grandfather. That's just classic old Nan sass. But like everything else about Jojen, it's spooky when you actually think about it. Like that he he's this kid who comes off like he's an old man, like he, he's a changeling, like there's something off about him. Again, it feels like a Children of the Forest parallel. He's childlike. But ancient, Jojen has an old soul in a disconcerting way, like uh, like that's not really him in there. That's the feeling you get off him. Right. You know, he, the spirit of a thousand dreamers is, or the, the skulls mm -hmm. of a thousand dreamers or bones, so to speak, when we get to the guy crow. I got to write mm -hmm. the third time. Um, but it's 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 very much how the feeling that I also get from, from Jojen Reed, small, seemingly old, yet kind of childlike in some ways. That's kind of how the children of the forest are when Bran meets them in A Dance of Dragons, isn't it? And more to like your point about, you know, Jojen being an old soul, when Leaf, that child of the forest, is explaining the perspective of the children of the forest in dance, I can feel George doing a bit of narrative paralleling between Jojen and the children of the forest via Leaf's monologue about her world dying around her. Yeah, it's very much like Jojen Reed, guys. So here's what Leaf says. Before the first men came, all this land that you call Westeros was home to us. Yet, even in those days, we were few. The gods gave us long lives, but not great numbers, lest we overrun the world as deer will overrun a wood when there is no wolves to hunt them. That was in the dawn of days, when our sun was rising. Now it sinks, and this is our long dwindling. The giants are almost gone as well. They who are our bane and our brothers. The great lions of the western hills have been slain. The unicorns are all but gone. The mammoths down to a few hundred. The direwolves will last us all, but their time will come as well. In the world that men have made, there is no room for us. So, I mean, for me, it's like more than just the common physical traits and similarities between the children of the forest and Jojen Reed, small stature and green eyes, and that kind of mystical commonality that we're going to talk about here later at the end of this podcast. It's the emotional commonalities between the children of the forest and Jojen that really makes me think that the Reeds do truly descend from some sort of union between the children of the forest and the first men. Is that the new way that Bran has ahead of him, though? I mean, that's is Bran supposed to be this sad, melancholic figure just like Jojen Reed? Is that actually better than what he's actually living his life in Winterfell as now? He's at least a little bit comfortable, even if it is kind of shitty being paralyzed and not having green sight or warging or all or skin changing or becoming a beastling. 
that's the question I have for you is, is it better to be brand the broken than brand the winged wolf? I I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. Well, that's the choice he's faced with throughout this chapter. And if Mira and Summer fighting and dueling and having a great time at the start represents the old life into which Bran wants to wake back up, then Jojen speaks for the trees and the dreams, keeping him in his new life. And as such, Bran feels just like so crestfallen when he gradually realizes they want something from him after all. They weren't just his friends. It's a magical form of all the Stark vassals angling for political power in Bran's first three chapters in the book. In a a way, we're like reenacting his fall. Bran starts this Mm -hmm. chapter out happy and playing with his wolf and his loved ones. And then a magical figure interrupts to warn him of destiny and force him to grow up. And and the forcing him to grow up part is crucial. I don't think you can separate Bran's magical journey from his coming of age. And I think George is tying the two deliberately together here. Jojen is the emissary of the Three-Eyed Crow, but he's also a replacement big brother, forcing Bran Mm. to be a man instead of playing the boy, as Rob said before he left. Or, I mean, he could be a big brother. He could also be family-friendly Charon, ferrying Bran towards his, you know, messianic destiny. We'll get to all that. Exactly. I, I love the point you're making, though, about Jojen and Mir are subbing in for his lost family. You know, Little and Big Water Frey fucking suck, but they also failed as as his foster brothers. Like, Bran can't stand being around them. And Lewin and Roderick have mixed success of being Bran's mom and dad uh, to both him and to his and to his brother. Amira and Jojen, though, as we see in this chapter, they're succeeding where others have failed. Jojen, uh, Mira specifically is breaking Bran's melancholy that he's been experiencing since his injury and his fall back in uh, Game of Thrones Bran 2. And, you know, he's only succeeding for a moment. She's only succeeding for a moment before, of course, uh, Jojen ends up bringing right back into that melancholy. So the additional layer to Mira, though, is that, you know, uh, one of my favorite kind of underloved, undervalued ships is the idea of Mira and Bran together. I'm not I'm sure our, our friend Just Reds will come up with a nice ship name for Mira and Jojen. I'm, I'm tasking you with that right now. So go ahead and do that right now. Um, but, yeah, you start to see Bran's crush start to develop on her, right? As he, as he thinks she wasn't scared to get dirty and she could run and fight and throw as good as a boy. It's cute, right? I mean, it's, it's super fucking cute. It's that start of a nine-year-old boy's crush. It's kind of really good writing on George's part, showing how this sort of thing works for a nine-year-old boy kid. And on the other hand, Jojen, as we've been saying, is framed really differently from Mira, and his relationship to Bran only gets weirder as this chapter regresses. God, does it get weird. The structure of this chapter overall is a perfect microcosm of the structure of a classic of a Clash of Kings as a whole, this dialectic unfolding between the political and magical worlds. Bran and the reader both slowly understand not only that Jojen and Mira weren't fully honest about why they came to Winterfell, but that they belong to a completely different part of the story than advertised upon their introduction. Bran is their prince, sincerely and earnestly, but Jojen especially sees him as something more. Godhead. Tree of life, hinge of the world, cosmic ordained center of creation. How do you bridge that gap? That's a question that not only applies to the characters, but the author and the audience. George has to convince not only Bran, but the reader, that his Arthurian protagonist can move between worlds and so solve their interrelated problems. He structures this scene, like the book, as a whole around that dynamic. Specifically, he steers the light conversation at the start of the chapter into deeper, darker waters by picking up on the theme of Cranog culture brought up with the Reed's introduction in Bran 3. Bran is trying to reach out to his companions and vassals, just like he did at the feast when he asked Sir Roderick, oh, do they really eat 
you know, uh, like lizard lions and fish and birds down there. And then he stopped away, but they just haven't tried beef. And he was reaching out and showing them his culture. And now he asks about their masters at arms. How do you do things down there? While telling them that he much prefers them to their racist enemies, the phrase. <laughs> this is the Prince of Winterfell at work, sincerely. Of course, it's being expressed in like the kind of, you know, childish, petulant terms because Bran is nine. But it's like it's an important thing that Rob's heir is preferring the reeds over the phrase. Like that means something politically, especially given the history between the reeds and the phrase. Like, again, this is Bran acting in the political side. This is Bran acting as prince first. And with season eight in mind, we also have to think about this chapter in relation to Bran as the future king of Westeros. And that's, I feel like, is as at work with his relationship to the Reeds. I mean, learning about unique cultures of vassal houses and lords and learning about them as people, bestowing favor over on them over less trustworthy allies is how you hashtag win in a feudal setting. I mean, it sounds silly to say that Bran's attempt to make childhood friends is how to be a good king, but... That's really the case for Westeros and how feudal relationships work. We need only to look at Robert and Ned's friendship under John Aaron's fosterage to see how three kingdoms of Westeros were bound together to become the first three of Robert's rebellions. And yet, each feudal relationship is unique, different, weird. Robert, Ned, and John Aaron found this out with the Tullys and the Lannisters. Like, that was not a really easy, happy relationship that they had, but they somehow made it work, and mostly through marriage alliances. So, too, Bran is about to find this out about House Reed. They are weird, unique, special, and a little bit antagonistic. At least Jojen is. And there's uh, navigating those cultural differences are a huge part of, of politics. We see that with, with Danny's storyline all across the society she moves through in Nessos. We see that with Stannis. And one of his best moves is crossing the cultural divide with the Northern Mountain clans. And we see this too with Bran reaching out to the Reeds. Just like how they eat differently down in the neck, they don't have masters at arms, nor maesters, any of the cultural markers of the world Bran knows, the world of which he is prince, his political world at Winterfell. He must step into mist and mysticism to navigate their world, and the tone quickly becomes less innocuous, and as you say, more threatening as he does so. Greywater Watch specifically immediately feels like it belongs to the astral plane as much as reality, just like Winterfell itself, or Dragonstone, or Harrenhal, or Karth, all these locations we're discussing in A Clash of Kings. Howland's Castle Moves, and yes, that is a reference to Howl's Moving Castle, but it also hints that the reeds belong to the world of dreamers and weirwood faces. They're a parallel to the Night's Watch, hence Watch in their castle's name. They keep watch for the north on its southern border. Moat Kaelin's broken castle stand in for Castle Black. The neck and the wall are their true fortresses. And in both cases, the political borders of the north disappear into this haunted dreamscape where the whispers of the children of the forest reign supreme. Now in the present day of the story, politically speaking, the Starks are the north, and the north is the Starks. We'll see evidence of that throughout A Dance with Dragons, especially. But the reeds are a reminder of the deal the Starks made way back in the mists of time in order to secure that modern-day political legacy, in order to make it even possible in the present. The first men were only able to throw back the Andals because of the defenses of the children of the forest. Just like how Winterfell's central position in the north is rooted in the magically inclined hot springs below the castle, the independent north that Rob now rules, that Bran is now prince of, is built on the bones, sometimes literally, of the magical world that preceded it. Now, that's not to say that the Reeds or even the Children of the Forest are here to, like, usurp the Starks and renege <laughs> on the deal. The Starks are the only chance to keep the deal. That's the point. The oath that Mira and Jojen swore to Bran in his previous chapter is rooted in this older, sacred, mystical arrangement, as much as contemporary feudal norms. So far in his story, Bran thinks of his princely duties as Stark and Winterfell as something he does during the day, in opposition to the wolf dreams of night. 
And what the reads have come to do is bridge that gap, telling Bran that these are two halves of the whole, the winged wolf, and he must reconcile them. And that is the essence of the hero's journey. There's this great uh, French movie I love called L'Entreux, The Intruder. It came out like 15 years ago. It was directed by this woman, Claire Denis, who's a great director. who's having kind of a, a revival the last few years. She made a movie called High Life with Robert Pattinson last year that everyone loved. And this movie, L'Entreux, opens with this character who represents death, just staring down the camera, lighting a cigarette. And she says in voiceover, your worst enemies are hiding inside, in the shadows, in your heart. And that's the revelation at the core of the hero's journey. That's what stories like Brands are all about. The underlying function of the mentors and the innermost cave and the supernatural aid, etc., is just to bring this truth to the surface. And this truth is very painful, but necessary for maturation. The monster in the darkness is you. And what you do after you realize that is what makes you who you are. Darth Vader has Luke's face in the cave and Empire Strikes Back for a reason. This is the point. And part of what makes Jojen different from the other heralds of wonder and terror in A Clash of Kings, like Melisandre or Quaithe or Jock and Hagar, is that Jojen directly addresses this structure, while the other ones all hide it behind, like, mantras and obfuscation <laughs> and side quests. Now, Jojen isn't exactly being honest with Bran in this chapter. There is a whole lot he's leaving out, and we know that especially coming back as rereaders. But he is blunt and direct about what's happening to Bran in a way that the others aren't because they don't have to be. Melisandre regards Stannis as a blunt instrument of prophecy. She needs his signature on the dotted line and not much more than that. Quaith obviously is even more opaque, but if I had to guess, I would say she sees Daenerys in much the same way. Jockin, of course, seems reluctant to tell Arya what he's all about until she passes his little test. But Jojen needs Bran to be conscious and partially informed, at least, about what's happening inside him. Because for Bran to fulfill his destiny, he needs to actively shape and expand his powers, whereas those other messiah figures just need to follow their pre-existing motives in the right direction, as far as their mentors are concerned. Like, Stannis doesn't get his own visions until a storm of swords. Arya doesn't show up at the House of Black and White until a feast for crows. Danny doesn't ride a dragon until, like, the end of a dance with dragons. But Bran was born to build the future, not merely help bring it about. So he needs to open his third eye, like, yesterday in order to save the world. So Jojen has to be a little more forthcoming with him. That's amazingly said. Uh, you know. Well, thank you. It's awesome. And I, and I think it's, too, it's a deliberate contrast to how the other mentor figures are operating with their own particular protagonists. Because they're all telling them to play roles, to basically be taking on the drapings of power, to cast shadows on walls. And it's fascinating the point that you're regarding specifically about Stannis, because this is the Stannis of podcast, um, in that Stannis starts receiving visions in the flames and a storm of swords just prior to him sailing north to, quote, save the realm from Mance Raider, in quotation marks, of course, and putting the kingdom before the throne. But in Clash, so many of like these minders and these mentor figures are urging their protagonists to project images and play stage-like roles in a play. Varys is playing up how Tyrion can cast shadows and accumulate power through where people believe power resides. Mace Tyrell has Renly playing up the southern chivalric ethos and colors and marriage to his beautiful daughter. And Melisandre has Stannis adapting the drapings of being a Zora High Reborn with a religious ceremony on the beach, burning the idols from the Faith of the Seven. The contrast is Jojen, right? I mean, of all these characters, the mentor figures, it's Jojen Reed who's calling Bran to unlock real power, warging, green sight, skin changing, it's etc. Like he's got so much power that he wants Bran to unlock and to get a hold of because it's so important, not just for the North, not just for Bran Stark, not just for 
House Reed, House Stark. It's important for the salvation of the world because the apocalypse is fucking coming, guys. Jojen, like all of our other mentor figures, has to use turns in the conversation. He uses those turns in the conversation to get Bran to out his unspoken abilities and power here in this chapter. Yes, Jojen takes advantage of all this talk of Greywater Watch, how it's culturally different from Winterfell and also magical and weird, to shift the conversation to how Bran's self-conception and role in the story is about to change for good, that Bran is about to shift away from considering a place like Greywater Watch in terms of its political import and more for its magical import. And I love how George manages this transition because Bran's head is full of this this naive yearning to see far places. He's still the tiny fantasy reader caught up in his dreams of Middle-earth wishing to travel outside his home for the first time. And Jojen is taking advantage of that to tell him to do, well, exactly that. Leave home, <laughs> get on the road, and let it sweep you away. Step outside the egg onto your hero's journey and do it as quickly as possible, kid. Because danger is lurking for the sacred golden homestead, as it tends to for protagonists. But George, interestingly, swerves on us here. He keeps Jojen's prophetic warning of the Ironborn invasion of the North, the danger he's talking about, in his back pocket for Brand 5 when it's too late to do any good. Jojen in this scene implies that Bram needs to leave Winterfell like right fucking now to avoid the coming calamity in the form of the Ironborn. And he's later going to reveal in Bran's next chapter that the sea is coming to Winterfell. It'll flow over the walls and that Reek will cut the faces off Bran and Rickon. But then here and then also like throughout all of Bran's chapters, Jojen will consistently state that this is all predestined. This is destiny and they can't avoid what's coming. So my question to you is why is Jojen urging Bran to leave Winterfell now, knowing that destiny cannot be averted. I think Jojen is conflicted about what it is exactly he's supposed to be doing, and I think he's getting kind of mixed messages from his own prophetic images versus the ones Bloodraven is directing to him specifically. Because while Bloodraven definitely directed the the winged wolf dream to Jojen, I don't get the sense that the other dreams that Bloodraven is particularly in charge of them or cares. Hmm. So maybe Jojen is di- having difficulty discerning what ex- what path the Three-Eyed Crow has him on and, and what exactly the nature of those images are. Mira and Bran kind of jump to the conclusions of those images regarding Reek specifically later on. Jojen holds back in more ambiguously. As he says, he just doesn't know why he's being given these, these visions if they're not allowed to change anything. But he does have a specific directive from both his father and Bloodraven. I think he's trying to follow that even in the face of contradictory visions. I'll accept that answer for now. But yes, I'm still curious about how all of this works. But I also see, you know, I think too, like Jocha, as much as he is a very mystical type figure, he is also human at the same time. So maybe like all these characters who attempt to avoid destiny, he's attempting to do his own part to try and kind of avoid the destiny that could, that, is, could, that could, or that he's potentially seen in a green dream of first falling onto Bran. We're going to see the same question with Melisandre, and she manages to kind of like bluff her way through it with zealotry, which Jojen doesn't quite do, but there's always a contradiction at the heart of this stuff, in large part because we're just mortal and we're not made to handle this stuff or interpret it properly, as we see throughout the series. But what, we, what it does have an impact on is how we treat each other, and Jojen uses his own powers here as a lure to get Bran to expose his, reaching past all pretense to directly address the elephant in the room, namely Bran's magical dreams. And this has hung over Bran's story since his coma vision in Book 1. It returned to prominence when he and Rickon shared dreams of their father's death. But it serves as a sudden jolt here because it's a newcomer talking about the dreams out of nowhere. (laughs) All of a sudden, Jojen is speaking not for his father, Howland Reed of the Neck, dad's old war buddy, but the three-eyed crow. Everything about this relationship has permanently changed. Jojen drags the dream world into the daylight, and as you might imagine, that is a hideously unsettling experience for Bran. 
There's a moment like this early on in Best Novel Ever, Gravity's Rainbow, <laughs> when our first POV character, Pirate Prentice, recounts how he first realized his dreams were more than just dreams. A man in real life spoke to him a sentence he had heard word for word the night before in a dream. And that's what Bran is going through here. The purely uncanny. A sudden loss of the ability to tell what's real and what's only in your head. He will describe it in his final chapter in this book when he finally opens his third eye as seeing double. <laughs> and George gets this David Lynchian feeling across by bringing the conversation to a dead stop. In silence, all the imagery comes rushing in on Bran at once. Wolf dreams, flying dreams, falling dreams, invading his everyday life as Prince of Winterfell. As always in A Clash of Kings, the change is communicated by colors. Golden man and copper blood, as Bran describes them. A rainbow flooding over the gray, white, and black. Jojen has crossed, and therefore broken, the borders Bran has been trying so hard to maintain between these worlds. And much like how Melisandre had to share the contents of a couple visions with Stannis <laughs> in order to get his buy-in, Jojen has to offer up a dream of his own in order to get his chosen one to trust his new magical mentor figure. Jojen describes his dream as being a green dream. That's how he knew it was true. But he also identifies the stone chains as gray, so it's not quite clear how the color works in these dreams and what gives away that it's a green dream. So immediately we get the ambiguity George loves with magic tied into that expanding color scheme. We see that also with Summer's golden eyes regarding Jojen with an ambiguous expression as Jojen talks about all of this. Because the direwolves are, seem like they're tied into Bloodraven and the Old God stuff, but they still don't necessarily treat Jojen like a friend. Jojen is connected through those golden eyes to the golden man in Bran's dreams, who both shattered his legs and opened his third eye. It's the presence of the three-eyed crow in Jojen's green dream that convinces Bran that Jojen is legit. Okay, finally, here at last is someone who will understand what's happening to me. So Bran eagerly confesses that the crow came to him as well, and Jojen reveals in turn that the crow is to be found in the far north, beyond the wall. It's this give and take between them, reminiscent of the pacts of information and control between human and children I brought up earlier. We as readers at this point are just like craning forward eagerly because we're getting exposition not only about <laughs> Bran or magic in general, but about the first sign of magic in the series, the one that's been hanging over the rest, the apocalyptic kind in the frozen north. But George keeps the real deal in the background, as he does in the John chapters in this book. He's saving the full-on horror of the Army of the Dead for the very beginning of A Storm of Swords. Here, what he's focusing on is Bran's character arc, above all, as you say, the, the Joseph Campbell stuff, the refusal of the call. After Bran received his call to adventure back in book one, he's been struggling with crossing the first threshold, which he will finally cross at the very end of this book. As Campbell puts it, his flowering world becomes a wasteland of dry stones. His life feels meaningless. And yeah, that's Bran with the wasteland of dry stones being Winterfell. From the outside, his life and the parallel life of the realm of which he is prince is expanding. But inside, he's conflicted and standing still. Jojen says he's offering Bran a way to break his chains, to square the circle between the walls of Winterfell and the world calling outside, as we saw at the end of his first chapter in this book. And along with that offer comes a promise of adventure and escape. You love the scary stories, Bran Stark? Well, here's your chance to star in one. <laughs> Jojen delivers a mentor monologue rooted in so many books and movies and just like oral traditions. Open your third eye. It comes alive when you're asleep. It can complete you and show you past and present and future. But in order to break Bran's chains, Jojen really does need Bran to cross that border with him to bring the inside to the outside, the night world into the daylight. Jojen can only show Bran the door. Bran has to walk through it. And Bran is refusing. Why is that? It's, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. In part, it's just like a, a knee-jerk combination of, of nervousness and disbelief at what Jojen is talking about here. 
Like, I think, you know, kids might think they want their stories and dreams to come to life, but in reality, that would be a disorienting, frightening thing to experience, someone talking intimately about your dreams. So Bran immediately pulls back when Jojen's talking about seeing, as seeing with his heart and seeing a tree as an acorn. He says, I don't need to see so far. He's freaked out. Despite wanting to fly, despite feeling betrayed when he woke up and found that he couldn't, talking about this kind of thing in the waking light of day with his vassals and friends is frightening. And it's very telling that Bran tries to end this uncomfortable line of questioning by circling back around to how the conversation started, Cranog culture. In the face of magical revelation, magical temptation, our protagonist is taking refuge in the political. He's trying to say in this moment, oh no, I'm not a wolf dreamer, actually, no, no, I'm just a prince of Winterfell. Let's talk about lizard lines, let's talk about life in the neck, let's talk about the things that the Stark in Winterfell and his vassals would talk about, not the things that his, the winged wolf and his magical mentor would talk about. But ironically, Bran is still trying to, quote, see so far in this conversation, in a way, by trying to learn more about the neck, which is so far away. And lizard lions, for him, are fantastical creatures of legend and myth, so he hasn't really escaped it. Because, as I said, the mists of Avalon surround the north in both directions. To go north, you must go south. The neck is as linked to the magical world as much as the political. Bran can't escape the dream world, nor his destiny within it. And so Jojen just blows right past his feeble attempt to change the subject. Tell us about your dreams, kid. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to me that Bran, in effect, he has this idea that he wants to see outside of the world. He wants to experience things that he can't experience because of his paralysis, because he has lost the ability to walk. He thinks that he might be able to fly because the Three-Eyed Crow had told him as much as his first dream of the Three-Eyed Crow back in the Game of Thrones. But he falls back into this fantasy world when... Jojen is presenting him the cold reality that yes, you can do all these magical, fantastical, wonderful things. But then Bran's like, no, 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 that, that's not what I meant at all. I was kind of like thinking about like watching a movie about this. That's more what I was <laughs> I had in mind than, than mm -hmm. actually experiencing, you know, seeing a shy and seeing the far north. And you know, one of the fascinating things about this chapter too is that Jojen says that he can see way, way up in the north. But Bran has already seen that. He doesn't reveal it to Jojen here, but Bran has already seen the heart of winter. And I wonder if that is the narrative device that George is utilizing here subtextually to have Bran reject wanting to be a part of that, to embrace that power. Because the true north, the heart of winter, is fucking terrifying. It's a place where the others are. It's the place where the apocalypse is potentially emanating from. And Jojen is saying it's, it's Bran's responsibility to, to take charge of this site. And he's kind of hijacking what Bran has seen in his sleep. And the shock of this, the sudden violation of intimacy in what had been a pleasant scene, also helps explain Bran's negative reaction to Jojen's questioning. But Bran also doesn't like this line of questioning because it means he's failed at keeping his shit together. <laughs> like, Mira notes that his dreams are the subject of gossip around the castle, and I get the feeling that Bran might not have known that, and it's embarrassing for him. Above all, though, Bran is refusing Jojen's call to action because his dreaming visions are inextricably linked in his mind to not only the heart of winter, but the terrible injury that preceded those visions, his fall. In the grand tradition of shamanic figures like Bran, the injury may have made his powers possible. So for Bran, the flight is forever shadowed by the fall. He once more takes refuge in the political world, insisting that as, as Prince of Winterfell, he doesn't have to talk <laughs> about his dreams. But Jojen utterly disarms him by exposing the truth. Bran falls every night, and not talking about it doesn't help. Proclaiming you're the Prince of Winterfell doesn't help. As with every hero, he has to bring the dark into the light and deal with both at once, not just one at a time. But Bran is traumatized by his fall, and so even as part of him reaches forward eagerly for the enlightenment and adventure Jojen is offering him, the rest of him reacts like he's just touched a hot stove. And the direwolves pick up on that. 
And here where we get here's where we get the payoff to the duel between Mira and Summer that started the chapter, and Mira noting th- that the direwolves have proven happy to shed blood in defense of their starklings. The great irony here is that even as the surface tension of this scene comes from the reeds being endangered, there's an underlying tension wherein the wolves' anger proves Jojen right and Bran wrong. Bran is making the wolves angry because he has superpowers. Like, Bran insists that Jojen is making the wolves angry, but what kind of sense does that make? They don't speak the common tongue, they're wolves. The fact that even Shaggy Dog, with whom Bran is not otherwise bonded, acts out Bran's anger here, speaks to both Bran's growing warg powers, and also how Jojen has just reached past all of his defenses to leave him completely vulnerable. And while Mira, who is the most grounded human in this scene between two (laughs) infant gods and two magic wolves, is terrified of the large angry dogs like you or I would be, Jojen is not scared of Summer and Shaggy Dog because his sacred knowledge has transformed him so deeply. He knows how and when and where he will die. Hmm. Think about that. Think about what that would do to you day by day. Think about how that would alter your relationship to everyone and everything in your life. We see the impact of it in basically every scene in which Jojen appears, but we get a perfect microcosm of it here in which he stares at like this slavering monster coming at him and goes, huh, that's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Jojen has completely suppressed the survival instinct that connects us to the animal kingdom. He is other. What will Bran be in the end? And then you have Mira there, and Mira's role in the proceedings is interesting. Obviously, most of this chapter revolves around Bran, Jojen, Maester Lewin, Blood Raven in the background. But Mira's important, because on one hand, she repeatedly backs up Jojen's narrative, both in this chapter and in Bran 5. She's always nodding along and saying, yep, Jojen's right about that. Yep, Jojen's right about that. But she also pokes holes in that narrative. Not out of, like, disbelief, like Maester Lewin, but just out of out of terror and despair at what magic has done to her little brother and will do in the future. Maybe my favorite part of the chapter is this exchange. My brother has the green sight, said Mira. He dreams things that haven't happened, but sometimes they do. There is no sometimes, Mira. A look passed between them, him sad, her defiant. We just understand so much about these two and their dynamic from so few words there. Mira wants to believe that the green dreams only sometimes come true, so as to preserve a slender hope that Jojen might be wrong about how and when and where he dies. But Jojen shoots back that there is no exit. There's no wiggle room around the dictates of destiny. The future may reveal itself to us in uncertain form. It's the mists of dream and prophecy. But our inability to perceive the pattern doesn't change the existence of the pattern. Jojen Reed is a doomed supporting character in the story of Brandon Stark, protagonist of reality, and there is nothing Jojen, nor Mira, nor even Bran can do about that. So while Jojen shows Bran the possibilities of power, I also think he's there to show the pitfalls. He's also there to show Bran that sorcery is a sword without a hilt, and there is no safe way to wield it. He's Dr. Manhattan, and at some point, Bran is likely going to assume the similar role in knowing the past, present, and future, as Jojen says. Bran, in the fullness of his power, as Jojen states, will be able to see the heart tree of Winterfell in its acorn form, in its current state, and as a stump thousands of years down there, hundreds of years down the, down the road from now. That's That's a power that is terrific and terrible and awful and amazing and all of those things wrapped 
in, in, in and of itself. And I think too, like when we're talking about this power of green side and this power of prophecy, it really shapes how these characters are interacting and how they are perceiving the world around them. Like I was thinking about this, like when, when Mira tells Jojen that he needs to like climb up the tree and he needs to escape and just like, this is not the day I die. Well, it's not the day that you die because you climbed up the tree, right? Exactly. That's the mystic character in the story. There's also a skeptical character. There's also the character of the educated mind that has a much more agnostic outlook in terms of how magic operates. And that is Maester Lewin. And Maester Lewin is a great contrast to Jojen Reed. There are two halves of the whole, and I love how swiftly George moves Bran along here. As soon as he's done with the reeds, he reaches out for reassurance from Maester Lewin. And that dynamic defines the chapter. Bran 4 starts with a duel, because the chapter as a whole is a duel, not between Mira and Summer, but between Jojen and Lewin. The Maester and the Dreamer never face off directly, like Crescent and Melisandre did in the prologue, but their worldviews come into conflict over Bran's soul. Jojen directly challenges Lewin's sleeping draught, Lewin's idea of dreams, Lewin's conception of Bran as prince in Stark and Winterfell. In Jojen's view in this chapter, Lewin has fundamentally misunderstood what Bran's role in the world is, and indeed what it is the Starks and Winterfell are here to do. So Bran is caught between mentors, sorceress and secular, new and old. And he's kind of worried the new one might be right. Jojen's making some points. And if you look at the structure of Bran's A Clash of Kings arc, this is a good time for questioning, because this is his central chapter in the book, fourth out of seven. His first chapter in A Clash of Kings was concerned with childish things, petulance, Rickon, <laughs> the Walder's fray, wolf howls. His last one in the book, the very last chapter in the book, is concerned with putting away childish things, walking away from Winterfell, even as he reaffirms its eternal strength, broken, not dead, just like me. Here, in the middle of his arc in the book, his two halves square off, just like Stannis and Renly will square off at Storm's End a few chapters from now. This is a, a sensible thing to do in the middle of a book. The Godswood was an oasis that is now violated by Jojen's challenge, so Bran takes refuge in Lewin's turret, which as he said is one of his favorite places in Winterfell. If the godswood is the heart of magic in Winterfell, the Maester's turret is a font of rationality and skepticism. But, especially in Bran chapters, George loves similarities under surface differences. The Ravens, as Bran says, love both places, hinting that Bloodraven and Bran will connect these worlds. Both places are untidy, covered in like layers of time. There's leaves in the godswood, paper in the turret, just these like sedimentary layers of information and time. And above all, both settings are tributes to wisdom. Hmm. And wisdom is perhaps what A Clash of Kings brand for is about more than anything else. After all, as George immediately notes, this is where Bran goes for lessons, and he attends those lessons with not only his baby brother Rickon, but also the Walder's Frey. So you see that the magical and political poles within Winterfell are clearly established. We know how Jojen has deconstructed Lewin's worldview in this chapter. So what will Lewin make of Jojen's when Bran comes to him and says Jojen says he, he can dream the future? Lewin moves in two directions at once. On the one hand, he does acknowledge that buried in the past, yes, there is evidence of the astral journeys of which Jojen speaks. Beyond just prescient dreaming, the Greenseers of the Children could apparently see through the Weirwoods and control animals. Even before coming back having read A Dance with Dragons, you can see the clear parallels with Bran's own developing powers in this book. The fact that he's dreams associated with the tree, the fact that he's dreaming inside summer. On the other hand, Maester Lewin, being the skeptic, being the rationalist, is demurring and deferring and hedging his bets throughout this scene. He's stressing words like claimed and supposedly a lot. 
The secular political world wins over the next generation by framing the magical religious side of things not entirely as a fraud, but as a bad bet. There's just too much uncertainty in wishful thinking there, kid. You're probably going to get screwed over. Now, we as readers know that magic is real, and Bran has a part to play in that world, but Lewin doesn't know about Melisandre, or Danny's dragons, and there is some logic to his reminder that, hey, most of Bran and Rickon's dreams have not come true. Equally important, though, is what Lewin says in this scene, is what he does not say. He does not dismiss magic's existence. He does not accuse Jojen of being a conscious fraud. And he does not lash out angrily at Bran for interrupting his work with this foolishness. In part, of course, this is because of the Game of Thrones. Lewin is a fine practitioner of it. This is the political world to which Lewin belongs. He doesn't want to overstep the line with Rob's heir, the Prince of Winterfell, nor with the Reeds of Greywater Watch, Ned's family friend. So he's, he's being judicious with his phrasing about what he thinks of all this. But it's also because Lewin isn't just a cutout figure with the word atheism written on him in crayon. <laughs> He's not just an archetype. He is humanized, just as Jojen was earlier. In both cases, you can see every word and action shaped by their worldviews and their backstories. Lewin loves Bran, deeply, like his own son, a possibility he surrendered when he dedicated himself to the world the Citadel is trying to build. He's not just trying to get rid of Bran in the moment or force him to abandon his curiosity. Lewin sincerely wants Bran to engage with the world in a way that won't break his heart. And he is so concerned about that because it happened to him. He turns to the chain around his neck as a useful metaphor, just like with John and Maester Eamon back in Book 1. John emphasized the full sweep of the metals representing all the peoples of the realm, and Bran echoes him in this chapter. But Lewin has one particular link in mind, one that seems to stand out from the rest, one that not every maester has. Valyrian steel. A synecdoche of magic, higher power, the fiery ladder. And of course Lewin has one of those. That's why he had obsidian <laughs> arrowheads clinging around in his turret back in book one. It turns out that when Lewin was a boy, he was a lot like Bran. Caught up in stories and dreams, wondering if they might be made real, wondering if magic was real. But for him, as he says, the spells didn't work. The stories were a lie. And Lewin internalized this disappointment as an acceptance that material reality is all there is. Magic for him, and probably religion too, is a parlor trick, a rose pulled from an ear, as he puts it. He thinks of mages and warlocks as pretenders, agreeing with Zerozo and Daxos from last week. And Lewin just wants to save Bran from going through that same disappointment, but what really fleshes him out as a character and a person is he doesn't just pretend that his more secular wisdom is going to neatly fill all the holes inside Bran. He doesn't pretend he has all the answers to Bran's questions. And I gotta read this passage in full because it's so beautiful. Oh, to be sure... There is much we do not understand. The years pass in their hundreds and their thousands. And what does any man see of life but a few summers, a few winters? We look at mountains and call them eternal, and so they seem. But in the course of time, mountains rise and fall, rivers change their courses, stars fall from the sky, and great cities sink beneath the sea. Even gods die, we think. Everything changes. And that's one of the major themes not only of Bran's plot in A Clash of Kings, but the story as a whole. Everything changes. Everything dies. The only constant is transformation. You die twice, really. The first death comes when you contemplate your own mortality for the first time. Jojen is an extreme fantastical version of that because of his prophecies, but even mundane characters like Lewin face down awareness of their own mortality. Everyone has to, from kings to beggars. It's one of the few things we all have in common. We all die. The first conscious act of magic we saw a human engage in, in this story, was Danny with Miri Mazdur in A Game of Thrones. And what was she trying to do? Defy death. Defy death in the name of love. 
If magic and religion in this universe at their twinned cores promise the defiance of death, the transcendence of mortal flesh through belief and the will to power, then what Lewin is saying is that magic and religion can't keep the promise to defy death because they too are mortal. They too will die. Even gods die. Even magic has died. Valyria was the last ember and Valyria is gone. Put aside these childish things, my adopted son, Lewin is saying, and accept the real world tools of being a man like I did. And yes, we can point out that Lewin is very much wrong on the specifics of this. <laughs> Jojen really does have prophetic dreams. Bran really is the chosen one. Dragons are back. A living shadow is about to kill a king and then a faceless man kills another one, etc., etc. But Lewin's larger philosophical point about the dialectics at work in his universe is what lends this scene its depth. And that is harder to refute. Because when we finally meet the children of the forest in a dance with dragons, when we finally realize they're still around, they basically concede the argument to Lewin. In that speech you quoted earlier, they concede that, yeah, in the world that men have made, there is no room for us. In the political world, in the magical world, we are all just so fucking small in the sweep of time. Tides of war and sorcery that are world-shaking for one generation will be a song at best a dozen generations down the line. How many adults in this, in this series are living with their ghosts, passing them on to their children, an army of zombies conquering the living from within? In this light, A Clash of Kings specifically emerges less as a story about the political and magical worlds fighting each other for prominence, and more a story about how they both reflect different aspects of the same struggle to face down the Grim Reaper. And that is what allows this mentor-v-mentor duel in this chapter to contribute so well to Bran's coming of age. Because secular or spiritual, his mentors are both talking about the same things. Growth, truth, death. Wisdom and maturation in the face of death is, again, the whole point of the hero's journey. And Bran must learn from both mentors in order to gain that all-important wisdom. And on reread Lewin's line about how green sight is just another sort of knowledge, which for him is just like he's trying to, you know, paper over Bran's points. But for me, that line stood out to me as so representative of Bran's story and George's outlook. It's all just different kinds of knowledge. So this chapter concludes not with a clean victory for one side of the other, you know, political trumps magical, magical trumps political. It's not that. It's a bittersweet mingling of the two. Mir comes back to tell Bran that he must decide for his own reasons. And his own reasons, as always... Come back to the songs and stories in his head. Come back to Bran as the fantasy reader, lost in the idea of what his life was going to be and how all those dreams were broken by the fall. And it's so devastating how George does this because at first, Bran is reassured by Lewin. Okay, no danger, no threat, no supernatural spookiness. The world is what I thought it was. And then he thinks about it. And then as the chapter ends, the disappointment sets in. He goes, well, but wait a minute. If magic was real, if the songs and stories were real, maybe I could get back the life I wanted. Maybe I could erase the fall. Maybe I could get my own personal miracle, a one-time exception to the stony, secular laws that Lewin says shape the world. It's like when Arya asks Thoros, could you bring back a man who lost his head not six times, just once? That's the temptation, more than anything. More than adventure, more than giving up the daily grind of being a prince. Bran wants his innocence back. He wants his childhood dreams back. He wants to be a knight. And so we see the potency of all of these ingredients colliding, backstory and big picture, political and magical, all of it propelling our protagonist forward. It's great stuff. Like, I know these, these middle brand chapters in The Clash of Kings aren't an obvious highlight of the book, like the Battle of Blackwater or the House of the Undying, but I really love them. I think every aspect of them is just beautiful. Yes, they are absolutely beautiful. And what you're saying is is really powerful stuff. Ultimately, we die twice. I think that's that's something that's worth 
keeping in mind the, the realization that are we have a finite end at some point in the future and uh, actually experiencing that end, that finite point at the end of our story. And I think, you know, George has talked about uh, stories and had their impact and how different archetypal roles are fulfilled by characters in A Song of Ice and Fire and how they represent different types of storytelling devices that he uses. But, you know, season eight concludes with Tyrion awkwardly telling the council at the end <laughs> that who has a better story than Bran Stark and that's why he needs to become the king of Westeros and really what's a what more can we ask for at the end of our own lives that our own story lives on and that we have the ability to progress beyond this mortal flesh and into something that lasts forever stories and you know stories can be a, a way that we can keep ourselves from truth as you know has been a major point in a song of ice and fire the idea of the long night and the others coming and everything like that has faded from being reality a historical event to being a legend it's all legendary but sometimes legends are true and sometimes a legend will have a lot of power if it's forgotten or if it's remembered more prominent hopefully it's 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 remembered and that's really what ultimately is going for brand i think brand will be remembered and us and our own lives we will fade and i know that there's a there's a great sad line that within like three generations like you will be forgotten the last person who ever knew you will fade away from existence and all that's left is stories and that's sad and it's also great stuff at the same time and great stuff as well that you're talking about it's amazing this is a great it's a great chapter man beautifully said sir i think it's such a great chapter because it, it brings such such deep bittersweet human thoughts out of you and that's you know again it's it's not not a fireworks display like some of the other much loved parts of this book but i think at a, at a, at a rich human level this is some of the best stuff it absolutely is. So I think that about wraps up for the depth portion of this podcast. To transition a bit to foreshadowing and groundwork for this episode, we, we kind of like skipped over this or we, we kind of paper over a little bit. Um, but there's one little chunk of northern politics that we do get in this chapter. And it's super important because it's going to influence the rest of how Bran's Winterfell Clash of Kings arc works and really how the Dance with Dragons northern storyline gets kind of meted out. We learn that Ramsay Snow has kidnapped Lady Hornwood and forced her to marry him in order to gain control of her land. And the Manorlees are also fighting and have seized Castle Hornwood. And this is really going to play out in Brand 5, in which the Bastard of Bolton, excuse me, I mean Reek, pays for his crimes. Or does he? Who pays for the crimes in this story? It's one of the most confusing aspects of A Clash of Kings, but we will definitely be unpacking that come Brand 5. Everyone finds that twist too confusing, but I love it. The the Ramsey Reek twist is the, is one of my favorite twists in the whole story, especially given the layers it takes on when you come back after Theon's dance chapters. And yes, we do get like this kind of like segregated paragraph that's just about uh, politics in this chapter that's much more about magic and big themes. And it, the, the interesting part of it is that Sir Roderick is just as pissed at Wyman Manderley as he is hmm. at Ramsey, because Wyman Manderley, once he saw Ramsey break into King's Peace, he thought, oh, well, you know. May as well, may as well cross the border and take the castle. And that's, I love how George does it because it shows you while Ramsay is indeed a uniquely bad actor, there's no really saintly character keeping the peace in the north right now. That the, this vacuum is there because Rob and so many of his men are in the south and Wyman is willing to take advantage of that. And even though he's not a monster like Ramsay, he's also not really concerned for the well-being of Lady Hornwood and he is out for his own house's interest above all else. And I like how George frames that. I like that too. So Lewin's story about trying his hand at the, quote, higher mysteries gets further developed in A Feast for Crows when we learn about how the Citadel demands that would-be maesters try and fail to light glass candles in order to convince them that magic is dead, which I love because it's such a flex but also such a, 
a weakness and a reveal of fear that like we got to make sure we're constantly like on the watch to make sure magic's not coming back and none of our own people are good at magic we got to make sure we stamp this out which definitely lines up with what marwin the mage has to say about how the archmasters see the world the glass candles are burning as what opens mm-hmm. up the feast for crows prologue i don't know if it opens up but it's definitely one of those metal moments as you were indicating with your little devil sign there but um i you know the thing i i wonder about is whether um whether marwin has a valyrian steel link i would have to imagine he probably does given his fascination with magic and with the mystical side of learning and i you know, this is kind of a crazy idea, but I do wonder, we don't know the exact age of Marwin the Mage, but mayhaps he and Lewin were co-students at the Citadel themselves, and Lewin went away being a skeptic, skeptic of magic, and Marwin went away from the, from the Citadel being like, this shit is real, it's fucking real, guys, and we need to like get ahead of it before it gets ahead of us. Yeah, that's a great point. That's I, I, Whether Lewin, Marwin might have been already established when Lewin got there, and then Lewin, like, maybe ran the other way and like saw Marwin as like a cautionary tale. Like, Ooh, I don't want to end up like that guy. So anyways, the third piece of foreshadowing, the end of Bran's fourth chapter, and he would never walk nor fly nor be a knight. That's very deliberately paralleled by George come dance, come a dance of dragons in Bran's second chapter. When Bran finally meets with the three eyed crow, when the three eyed crow tells him you will never walk again, Bran, the pale lips promised, but you will fly. And it's a really great buildup that George integrates into Bran's story and that he's consistently reflecting on that dream from a Game of Thrones of the Three-Eyed Crow calling him to fly and how the first flying starts with a fall and finally having it revealed at the end that he will fly. But it's, you know, like a lot of these prophetic things that are going on in this chapter and throughout Bran's arc and what Jojen tells him. Flying for Bran is probably not going to be him actually soaring through the air Peter Pan style, but more likely being, uh, you know, working or excuse me, skin changing the ravens and flying through them. It's it's a, another great bittersweet moment when Bran has, has gone all in on his magical powers because he thinks he can rewind the clock. He thinks he can get his childhood dreams back. And then Blood Raven tells him, no, kid, that was never the deal. You're You're moving on to something much bigger, but also something that requires you to leave everything behind. As he says, you know, the people... In his family, that meant so much to him. The people with whom and against whom he fought wars in his youth, <laughs> they're all gone. And the same is, is true for Bran, and Bran has to let go. And that's that, you know, there's a lot of possibility in that, but also a, a lot of loss and a lot of sorrow. Very, very much rooted in the emotions of this chapter. And so many of the images and concepts in this chapter, crows, eyes, flight, dreams, gods dying, men as meat, the grasping warlocks of the east, <laughs> the, quote, ember of magic that was Valyria. All of this comes back later to circle in a more horrific, apocalyptic manner around Euron Greyjoy, the crow's eye. And this sets up Euron as the photo-negative of Bran, the antagonist to his protagonist, that he's going through like the same rituals, the same traditions and images, but ending up just a monster at the end of it instead (laughs) of the ideal Arthurian protagonist. And I think, you know, one way I'd like to talk about Euron for people who aren't interested in him as a character or kind of confused by him is think of him as evil Bran. Think of him as a version of Bran who went through all this but like had possessing Hodor, like where that's Bran's worst sin. Like that would be like one of, that would be barely in the top 10 for Euron. Yeah, that Euron is, um, fa- it's fascinating to consider Bloodraven attempting to find his protege. You, you, we, you, I get the impression from this chapter that Bloodraven attempted to 
potentially choose Jojen as well as a potential protege too, because he appeared to him when he was in his sickness, when he had the gray water fever. I, I don't know how Blood Raven or the Three-Eyed Crow appeared to Euron, whether Euron was desperately sick at one point in his childhood, and that's when he appeared to him. And we also see too in the form of Sweet Robin, everyone's favorite Azor High character, or at least our Hand of the King with Man <laughs> Zach's favorite Azor High figure, that his shaking sickness was likely the method that Blood Raven, the Three-Eyed Crow slash Blood Raven appeared to brand or rather appear to him so is does the people have to be near a near have a near-death experience in order for them to appear to them is that how blood raven is attempted to sort through the potential heroes of the, of the story that his proteges the people who are going to succeed him at the at the uh, at his cave i, I don't know those, those are excellent questions and we'll, we'll hopefully uh, i would love to get more details of course about euron and blood raven i do hope that gets explicitly revealed at length i will have a, a lap up any detail any scrap from the table in that regard one final bit of foreshadowing here has to do with the prophecy at the end that Jojen had that Mira reveals to Bran. This is one of the more like kind of blunt and simple <laughs> prophetic setups. Like it immediately gets answered explicitly in the text. Bran thinks, oh, this is the prophecy, basically, <laughs> when we get to Bran 5. So not much mystery here. It's, it's you know, again, Jojen, as far as these magical herald figures go, Jojen is one of the more straightforward. And I think that's that's deliberate on George's part because, again, Jojen is trying to get Bran to actively get involved. Right. And, I, and I, you know, it's that same kind of element of fear that Bran is experiencing this chapter. Like when he gets, he hears word that Robb Stark has won a great victory out at Oxcross mm-hmm. and is besieging all these castles across the Westerlands. He doesn't feel triumphant at all. He, like this should be a moment where he's like, ah, fuck yeah, House Stark, winning the war of the five kings. Hell yeah. But instead he's like, God, like I'm scared for my brother's life and he has every reason to be scared for his brother's life. Meanwhile, the Freys are going to learn that Sir Steveron Frey is dead. So sad. Sorry, Sephron. I love their reaction when they just like pull out their little org chart <laughs> yeah. of the Frey family tree. Goes, okay, who's next? Is it him? Is it him? And then everyone else in the room goes, "Your relative just died." And they go, "Oh yeah, we're very sad." Anyway, back to the org chart. <laughs> I love the phrase, but yeah, it's it's a very very direct payoff because it's George is not really interested in the mystery of the prophecies as far as Jojen is concerned. It's more about getting Bran to accept it and move on to the next step. We have a very obvious discussion topic for this episode. I think uh, Jeff was teasing it a couple times throughout the episode. I think you all know where we're going with this. We're going to prove that the three-eyed crow absolutely, positively is 100% old man. Take it away, Jeff. Welcome back to our long overdue Your Theory is Bad and You Are Ugly segment of this podcast. <laughs> I mean, if you guys remember, so this is our 100th episode, so we have to like take it back to our roots, mm-hmm. right? When we first started this episode, our very first episode about the prologue for Game of Thrones was about the others are good or misunderstood. That's a theory that some people apparently believe in this fandom for some fucking unknown reason. And then we also did from Brand's first chapter, Robert's Rebellion was built on a lie, which um, got a little bit of credence from the show Game of Thrones. <laughs> you might have seen it once or twice. I don't know. And then we did The House of the Red Door is not in Bravos in our first Danny episode. And now we return to the dawn of time on our 100th episode to bring back an oldie yet a goodie. Blood Raven is not the Three-Eyed Crow. So one of the things I do is I'm a moderator from the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit. And one of the things I've noticed in the recent- The Lord's work, truly. Uh, yes, Relore's work, truly indeed. But one of the things I've noticed recently is that this theory has kind of come back. Like, I, I feel like there's kind of different waves of different bad theories that end up kind of coming back into vogue. And this one currently is in vogue there. So for me to be extremely fair, I'm going to tell you all of the points that are sort of plausible why Blood Raven is not the Three-Eyed Crow, because I'm so fair. I'm, we're both fair. We're, we're not. We're not fair at all. We're fucking not Why fair. would we be? How boring. When Bran later in The Dance with Dragons in his third chapter when Bram, second chapter when he asks if Bloodraven is a three-eyed crow Bloodraven says a crow 
The pale lord's voice was dry. His lips moved slowly as if he had forgotten how to form words. Once I, black of garb and black of blood. So Bloodraven, not knowing that Bran is talking about what Bran is talking about, means that he's not the three-eyed crow, of course. What? And during Bran's dream from the Game of Thrones, Bran asked whether the three-eyed crow is really a crow. So it can't be that Bloodraven doesn't think Bran is asking him if he's a member of the Night's Watch back in the Game of Thrones and it is dragons, right? I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. It can't also be that the form the person is sending the dreams is obscured from the sender, right? Wait a minute. A wooden face, corpse white. Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him, a boy with a wolf's face threw back his head and howled. And that's from Melisandre's one and only chapter from A Dance of Dragons, where she is seeing a vision in the flames of likely almost entirely 100% Bloodraven and Bran Stark. Does Bran have the face of a wolf in actuality? No. Does Bloodraven actually have a thousand eyes and one in reality? No. No. Okay. It can't also be that Bloodraven's a bit dull of speech, not having spoken to someone or anyone using his lips and voice in like 61 fucking years? No, of course not. It has to be that Bloodraven's not the three-eyed crow. Okay, next point that I, I see every once in a while. In Bran's fifth chapter, the next one that's coming up, Bran reveals to Josh and Nibiru that there's sometimes another presence in his dreams. Here's what Bran says. And there's dreams where the crow comes and tells me to fly. Sometimes the tree is in those dreams too, calling my name. I mean, that's interesting that the three-eyed crow could take on more forms than simply a crow, but I don't know why that shows us that Bloodraven is not the three-eyed crow and also potentially occupying the space of the werewood tree and whatever. Look, it's so goddamn dubious that there's some versions, as Emmett was alluding to, that old Nan is the three-eyed crow, right? She's the one that's sending all these visions to Bran because she's a storyteller. She introduces him to the others in these stories, right? So they must be the same character. One, There's one variation of this theory, which has it that the, that the menace that Bran feels when the Ironborn take Winterfell and his sixth chapter is tied to old Nan opening and closing her toothless mouth instead of, you know, to the fucking Ironborn who are menacing everyone after just taking Winterfell. My God, this is serious. It's the fucking worst. Well, Jeff, I'm going to cut you off before you have a heart attack. You have children to think of, sir. But yeah, that last one is, is very indicative of the problem here, which is this: these are people passing around like two sentences of bolded text and saying, look, these line up. And it's like, no, you have to read the chapter and get a sense of the mood in the room. And then you'll clearly see what's being talked about. And same with all the evidence, evidence, quote unquote, that you were talking about. Like, oh, look, he has dreams of both a tree and a crow. So they have to be two different people. Like, that's so painfully literal as, as a way of thinking about these inherently abstract, loose, fluid visions. Like, these are different images swirling into each other constantly. Bran is sometimes a wolf in these dreams. Sometimes he's a tree. John has a dream of him as a tree. As you say, Bloodraven might not even know half the time what the other person is seeing. And also, yeah, Bloodraven is like a thousand years old and tripping his mind off constantly <laughs> and is in a frozen, weird little fort at the top of the world. Like, maybe he's not the most coherent guy moment to moment. Maybe he's just confused when Bran's talking to him. I think that's much more likely than there's a whole other mentor character <laughs> hidden from us this whole time for reasons and that reveal, who, let me tell you, that's going to be something. Like, it's just a modicum of common sense required here. So, to again, be scrupulously fair as we are in the Nauticast, what is the direct evidence for Bloodraven being the three-eyed crow? Let's not just argue against their terrible theories. What, how, why do we say so authoritatively that Bloodraven is the three-eyed crow? Well, I would start with saying this. The a Dance with Dragons appendix states, and I'm quoting from Fool, the three-eyed crow, also called the last greenseer, sorcerer and dreamwalker, once a man of the Night's Watch named Brynden, now more tree than man. Obviously talking about Brynden 
Tully, you know, the blackfish, right? That's what he's talking about there. No, come on, guys. Brendan, Brendan Bloodraven, Brendan Rivers is who is in that. And then we have the World of Ice and Fire app, officially authorized by George R. Martin and created by submitting, by Elio and Linda submitting hundreds of questions to George R. Martin back in 2012. Yes, there is a whole, not a blog post about this. Identifies the three-eyed crow as Bloodraven, in which it says... After finding the last enclave of the children of the forest, Bran is led to the last green seer, the three-eyed crow of his dreams. Not a child of the forest, but Brynden Rivers, once known as Bloodraven. Okay, have we gotten that so far? Finally, final piece of evidence. This is all extra textual. So this is stuff you, if you are our patrons, you can take a look at the show notes. I've linked everything on there. Elio Garcia Jr. once asked George directly about the three-eyed crow as Bloodraven, in which Elio is recounting this conversation back from a, a recap from season four where the three-eyed raven in the show appears. And so Elio says, I recall asking George when I interviewed him, did he always know that the three-eyed crow was Bloodraven? Question mark. His answer was that he always knew that the three-eyed crow would be tied to the Targaryens. And it's, it's so nice to go back to our old segment of terrible theories, getting <laughs> nostalgia going for those early episodes, sir. So thank you so much for doing 100 episodes with me. Thank you, man. So I think that about wraps us up for this analysis of A Clash of Kings Brand 4. If you all have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean. So check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was guided by voices, Sir Courtney, what did the five fingers say to the face Penrose? Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spirit Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Bedjacott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Boole and De Morgan, and Lady Heather. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely, folks. Thank you very, very much for supporting us. It means a lot every single week to be shouting out your guys' names for small counselors and for Emma to do the High Lords and Ladies. It's great. So, Join us next week for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 7 in which Tyrion manipulates Lancel Lannister into becoming his spy and then goes to visit Shay before admitting he loves all the power he has. Well, I mean, why is why have you said that Tyrion is the protagonist for A Clash of Kings again? Protagonist doesn't mean good guy, Jeff. But <laughs> thankfully this is another episode I don't have to do with just Jeff. We will be joined next week by our first-time guest on the Nauticast, Jinx Lier. Yeah, We've been looking for a, a chance to do an episode with Jinx for a long time, so we're so excited to get to talk with her about, about Shay and how George writes sex workers and how he writes about Tyrion's relationship to them. So it should be a fun, insightful episode.